Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. This week's Acquirers podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Validia. Validia runs quantitative stock selection models using factor-based strategies from 22 published books and academic research papers with long-term track records of success. Validia has combed through books about historically successful investors such as Warren Buffett, Ben Graham, and Peter Lynch, and academic research papers that contain unique investment strategies and uses them to run model portfolios it has tracked since 2003. You may recognize Validia since two of its founders, Jack Forehand and Justin Carboneau, both good friends of mine, have appeared as guests on the podcast. Through the end of February, Validia is offering 33% off an annual subscription to both its standard and professional product to listeners of the Acquirers podcast. To find out more about Validia, or to take a free trial, you can go to validia.com forward slash Toby. Again, that's V-A-L-I-D-E-A.com forward slash Toby. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers podcast. My special guest today is Drew Dixon of Albert Bridge. We're going to be talking about his Alpha Europe strategy, studying at the Chicago Graduate School of Business under some of the biggest names in behavioral and efficient markets uh, theory right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquires Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquires Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. First, first job out of uh, college was uh, commodities? Yeah, I was uh, basically working with a group in Atlanta, Georgia. We did risk management work for folks that had exposure to commodity prices. The, the bulk of the business was for grain elevators in the Midwest, who these would have been farmers and grain elevators, but mostly elevators that had <clears throat> uh, exposure to corn, beans, or wheat prices that they posted for farmers. And so they're sort of long or shorts, depending on which side they're on. I um, mean, we helped them you know, analyze the, the price risk they had. But my boss was, um, at the time, wanted to do the same thing in the energy markets, the oil markets. And that's when I came down there. Um, didn't know anything, um, uh, but started working with him to sort of uh, basically help oil companies and jobbers and, whole, and, and wholesalers and retailers to take a look through their balance sheet and see where they might be impacted by price volatility. Um, the classic one could be a refiner who's buying crude and selling products, and then he's got this crack spread risk. And, and it was pretty national. It was pretty early days for the NYMEX back then. This is the early 90s. And so a lot of, I'm learning myself, obviously, but a lot of education for some relatively sophisticated companies who hadn't really used, um, they a lot of OOTC stuff, but not a lot in the futures market. And it was all, you know, the basis trading principles you have in, in the traditional sort of commodities um, you had an oil and in that in, in unleaded gas, heating oil, and then natural gas subsequently came on. So I spent six years doing that with him, um, but I always had this passion, uh, obviously for financial markets, but for stocks and for stock picking. And going back to my time at Purdue, I was there during the whole sort of '87 uh, happened right in the middle of my my sort of experience, and I, I you know started investment clubs with my buddies, and I was writing investor newsletters, and always been really just interested in um, the way financial markets work, particularly, particularly equity markets. And uh, we had a, at the Purdue Cranor Library, there was an old copy of Security Analysis, an original, I should have lifted it, uh, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, 
I, I checked that out and, uh, and everything I can get my hands on. And, um, it was, a it was, uh, I always had a passion for that. And so after, you know, doing the commodity, um, trading sort of off the floor, um, I really wanted to get back into more sort of take my career and sort of the, the equity side of markets again. Um, I spent a bit of time out in Korea before going to business school. Um, but for me, that was where the, I was really started to put things together in terms of how I wanted to think. And I'm still learning, um, but was just very intrigued by this whole, um, well, at the time, this emerging sort of conflict between efficient markets and behavioral finance. And, um, and I was uh, reading everything I could about the psychology of markets and, and, uh, and, uh, and at the same time, really sort of had an appreciation for the rigor of um, <clears throat> what the efficient market guys were doing. And so for me, the, the only choice to try to get into business school was at the University of Chicago where Gene Fama was there and Merton Miller was still alive. And there was this um, upstart, uh, slightly younger economist that was up in Cornell who uh, had been poking holes in the efficient market theory. He, uh, Bob, uh, well, there's Bob Schiller, but this is, this is Richard Thaler. And, and Fama famously um, was really intrigued by these guys attacking these notions of what drives the value premium, what drives returns and how rational are markets. And, and, um, and Gene said to Martin Miller, who was the king of the school, I think we need to get that Thaler guy down here and have, make him part of the faculty. And, and, uh, and Mert says, uh, well, Gene, I'll let the next generation make their own mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, uh, Fama made sure that Dick came down. And from, you know, that was in 95, 96, maybe it was 94, before I got there. But um, it's just been fascinating. And it was fascinating watching the two of them, complete opposite sides of the spectrum. Good friends, tennis buddies, golf buddies. They play at Beverly together, um, but they just go at it uh, over the these notions of what drives um, share prices and, and can you beat markets or can you not? And there, there's actually a lot more agreement there than people realize, but there's also a lot of disagreement. Um, but I I wanted to try to get into you know, be a part of that and learn and learn what I could. So um, that was that was it's a very open minded of Fama to have uh, invited probably his greatest critic to come and work with him and, and to learn from him. Well, he was that way. I mean, in, in Cliff, Asnes will tell you that when he was a PhD student, again, before my time, um, he wrote one of the early papers on momentum. Um, this was uh, long before um, Mark Carhart had added it as a fourth factor to the, to the models. And I can't remember if it was, um, um, I'm, I'm spacing out if it was LSV or, um, or uh, who it was that wrote the, the, the initial momentum paper, but Asnes had written the same PhD paper, just saying, hey, look, I'm seeing this weird stuff where stocks that have gone up over the last 12 months keep going up and stocks that went down over the last 12 keep going down and, um, and did the proper work on it and uh, proposed it to Gene. And Gene said, well, if it's in the data, write the paper. Uh, he was, you know, he's open to criticism and, and, uh, and that's the one anomaly that he, he uh, he really struggles with it. even today. He's just like, ah, what, I don't know what this compensation for. I mean, we, he can come up with yeah. a story for value, 
Um, and you can have debates about, you know, what, you know, is it the behavioral or the risk explanation, but that momentum one, that's a, yeah. it's a tough one to come up with for, from an efficient market perspective, as it means some compensation for, maybe it's a discontinuous jump risk that you might get one day. And so you need to be paid for that in the meantime, but I think it's kind of a lame post hoc look back reason why factors should work. I think it needs to be a sort of state variable kind of in the spirit of Bob Merton, this sort of I kept him stuff. If you want to have an efficient market story for why value works, well, it has to be compensation for a risk you're taking, um, or, or for that matter, small caps or or uh, market exposures. And um, but uh, and then the behavior explanation is, hey, now this is this has nothing to do with compensation for risk. This is due to glamour versus value sort of anchoring and excitedness and hurting and all these behavioral factors that impact the way, the way people make decisions. So I ended up, you know, a little bit more philosophically aligned with Thaler. Um, but I got to say, you know, I'm still learning today about finance because of Fama. He just teaches you how to think. Um, and uh, it was a great experience. How do you go from, so the old GSB, now it's called Booth, probably the best quant school in the States, maybe in the world. You got some of the biggest names on the efficient market side, also on the behavioral side. How do you get from there? I don't. I don't you're not. You're not a quant in your approach, are you? No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm intrigued by the the notions of it all, but um, at, at the heart of it, I'm I'm more interested in sort of the idiosyncratic firm specific side of uh, what it is stock pickers do. And um, now I do think that. It's, it's a little bit more difficult at a specific company level, but it's, I think it's still practical or practicable. You know, some of these things, same reasons that, that's to help explain why there are opportunities, um, these behavioral sort of overreactions, these underreactions, the underreaction thing that drives momentum. Um, you know, effectively what it is in my mind, it's, it's people underreacting to changes in the business model. And so as more people become, you know, cotton on as the narrative changes, this is one of the things that helps to explain why momentum works over the long run. People don't like to process information, which is different than their existing view, the confirmation bias thing. And I think you can apply that at a company level as well. It's more difficult. A lot of other things are introduced when you do that. But for me, um, <clears throat> if we can do that deep dive of fundamental research, trying to understand what a business model looks like, who's running it, what the policies are for um, managing their capital, and uh, and then try to develop a view of uh, not only is, is our view different from what the market thinks in terms of what the business might look like in two or three years, but why? Right. That's, that's the big one. Because you can always say, oh, I'm building a model. Look, I'm 20% ahead of the street. But Anyone could do that. I mean, you just, if you already have a pre existing notion, you like this company, you'll come up with whatever you want. And the more complicated the model you're using, the easier it is to get to the number you want. So, I, I one of my blog posts I wrote about, um, you know, the DCF being the Randy Watson of uh, valuation. Randy Watson was the, he was the singer in uh, Coming to America One, which Eddie Murphy said was good and terrible. And that's what to me the DCF is. It can, it's perfect, it is the perfect tool for a completely unbiased mind. Um, but if you introduce any notions of bias into your analysis, any predilections, any sort of um, disdain or belief in the management team, 
you can make that model sing, baby, and it can spit out whatever number you want. And so I try to sort of, make, you know, try to use proxies for the DCF it might be a little less biased and you can have a debate about what to, they might be, but, and in some cases, I think it's different for different companies. Some companies it's they're going to be much more driven depending on the balance sheet by EV metrics. Some will be driven by some of the parts value. Basically, what do we think the market will think? That's kind of our, it's a bit of a, Keynesian beauty contest analysis, but what do we think the market will think about this company in two years and how different is that than what the market thinks now? And if we can spot hurting, confirmation bias, anchoring, um, something which is explaining why they're not reacting to how positive things are or overreacting in the short term to how negative things are. I mean, as we worked through the pandemic, a lot of what we were doing was more of that sort of, I'm getting, getting ahead of myself in the whole career thing, but um, a lot of what we were doing is okay, hey, this stock should be down 20%. This, this thing is heavily levered. It's, it's uh, gonna see a trough. They're, they've got a, they're gonna have to refinance some debt because the markets are closed and that should put some pressure on things. So it should be down 20, not 70, but 20. So we found ourselves selling things that were only down, you know, 20 to buy things down 70 kind of uh, uh, behavior. But anyway, that's, that's getting ahead of things. So back to Chicago. Yeah, that's, uh, that was a, a great foundation for me. And I stayed pretty close and still have with, with Dick um, over the years um, and uh, continue to learn from him. And uh, I, uh, my whole goal is to try to merge the, the behavioral with the fundamental as we think about stock picking. When did you get to Oxif? I left, well, I started off at Fidelity um, uh, right after um, uh, business school. Um, I'd spent a summer in Hong Kong uh, with them and then full-time in London. I moved there in 99. And then three years later, I joined Oxif. Um, and that was my introduction to Long Short. Um, and uh, at the time, they, they've gone through their surge and the, their fall and perhaps recovery now. But at the time, it was much more of a, an RV shop, uh, much more merger arbitrage place that was uh, getting, uh, it was becoming more of a uh, multi-strategy firm at the time. And so I came in to sort of do more traditional equity stock picking, um, whereas most of the desk was more focused on some of the M&A sort of stuff. And um, great experience just seeing, you know, at Fidelity, you're driving this super tanker, right? You're you know, you're massive and you own 10% of a company. And if you want to change your mind about it, it's hard to. And if it's hard to change your mind, I think that's a little bit poisonous. That's, that's could be something that prevents you from doing the right work. And, and uh, so that helped to shape me that, you know, this sort of notion of, uh, and I, I think it also helped having been a commodity trader beforehand and that selling first and buying second, that, wasn't something I had to unlearn. And that was just natural to me. So it did whichever order you were doing it didn't matter. And so you know, to me, any stock, and even Ben Graham said this, you know, in security analysis, or maybe it was intelligent investor, um, uh, any stock price can be dear in one range and cheap in another. It's, and it, which is interesting to see in the environment we're in now where people just think you buy good stocks, they go up forever and sold quality compounding discussion we've been having for three or four years that's accelerated in the last 12 months. But um, I really do believe that any stock can be a buy, any stock can be a sell. Um, and it, there is a difference between price and value. And that's kind of the job of, you know, if, if that's 
if I'm good at that or if my, any of my peers are good at that, um, that can be a great thing for a portfolio. If we're not, or if I'm not, that money should be in an index fund. And you know, if you want your factor exposures to, if you don't want any factor exposures, fine. If you do want to have exposures to value, quality, and momentum, or in the last year, not value, uh, anti-momentum, or sorry, not value, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and for some periods, not momentum, um, that's your decision. But um, this residual in the regression equation, this, this, um, this out this this alpha the, this alpha that, that um, it, you know, we're all trying to capture um, that is the that is the goal and and to the extent that the the world has evolved to sort of be able to provide some of these I you know this like Prince the artist formerly known as Prince you've got this this thing that the formerly known as alpha thing which we can get now you can get um, in a value factor fund. You can get it with Cliff's products at AQR, a host of these guys um, that, that do great work. Um, and is there anything left after that? Is there anything left? Is there idiosyncratic risk in the academic sense? Is there firm-specific risk that that um, uh, you can take advantage of? And my answer, obviously I'm biased. I, I do this for a living, so I think the answer is yes. Um, but I will say that it's to do so, it's it's there are limited and rare opportunities where the, there is that kind of obvious sort of mismatch. Um, I don't think you can capture a whole lot of alpha in a big diversified portfolio. You can capture factor risks, and if you want to call that factor betas um, instead of alpha, um, the artist formerly known as, that's fine. It's probably what they are. Um, I, I do think that a lot of factors that people look at you know, going beyond the value, going beyond momentum, um, going beyond size, which is a debatable one itself. A lot of times people will call something a factor sort of in hindsight, this sort of after the fact, well, this, this, this all worked and this all worked at the same time. That must, that's a factor. And I'm just, maybe I'm just a bit too grounded in the whole theoretical notion of what factor risks are supposed to be, but there's supposed to be compensations for risk. It, they're supposed to be offering you something um, that um, it's a sort of state variable of hedging concern. You can hedge it out if you want to. Um, the fact that um, that uh, you know betting against beta is, works. What's that? What's that? What's the what's the theoretical one for that? What's the behavioral one for that? I don't have an explanation for it. Um, but uh, I'm pretty comfortable, and at least you know during not during all regimes, but I'm pretty comfortable believing that it's it's actually behavioral dynamics that drive momentum. It's behavioral dynamics that drive value or growth. Um, and uh, less so behavioral on the size stuff, that could be a liquidity risk thing. Um, but back to your question, no, I don't, I, I, I wanna be fully aware of what those sort of those factor exposures I'm taking and also philosophically focused on um, what remains as, as, as what we can try to capture. Um, and to do so though, it must be in a concentrate. I mean, in my view, it must be a very concentrated portfolio, which brings risk, right? You, this thing will naturally have periods of deep downdrafts. Um, but over time, um, if there is alpha to extract, it can't be done from a diversified portfolio. Let's just mathematically. Little, let's talk a little bit about Albert Bridge. What how do you characterize the philosophy there? And then how is that expressed in the, in the strategy or strategies? Yeah, well, it's, it's basically, a, it, it's, it's a process that 
given we don't, we, we try to be bottom up, we try to be film specific. Um, we try purposefully not to take a top down view about anything. Um, uh, even within factors, you know, I'll tweet out a lot of things or some things, hey, look at how much growth outperformed value it hasn't happened like this since 98, 99, blah, blah, blah. But broadly, you know, we'll, we're going to have a value bias, but it's not, a, it's not I mean, a, like what you might have told me, this super deep value bias that's sort of really dive in and buy the stuff that has a big margin of safety. And, and uh, uh, for us, it's, it's almost a, it's almost this two to three year window. Okay, let's, let's what what can we own today, where a business that's either not deteriorating as much as people think, or it's improving more than people think, or maybe it's even turning, that the market doesn't want to see yet. That the market will have a completely different view about um, uh, in a few years' time, and that's that's one that's one aspect of it. Um, and then it, so you've got to break that down into the fundamental part, the behavioral part, and the fundamental part. Um, and this is sort of just following from the way we do things at Fidelity. You just just you just do a deep dive. You you speak to the management, um, the CEO, the CFO, you do plant tours and visits, and you learn about the sector and all that, everything you need to know. But then you realize that you're one of a gazillion people doing the same thing. And and sometimes you'll see folks that you know think they have the inside edge because they just met with management, and I think that's kind of naive. I think you've got to realize that you know you're um, you're one of many sell side and buy side analysts doing the same thing. And and I think the real value added for us and for anyone who's picking stocks is to to see what you can pick out of that sort of avalanche of information and see if any of it actually matters to the investment thesis. And with that, we'll try to do a pretty rigorous modeling of those key factors, whatever they are. It could be certain products, it could be spinoffs of businesses, it could be um, lines uh, uh, within a, a software company, maintenance line. How much, you know, what's happening is that accelerating, deteriorating, the licenses are translating into that. What it means is it spills down and, and, and whatever we think the market will think is the thing that drives value. That's what we try to focus on. Um, and if we have to be a little bit ahead of the market in that, where we think they'll go in their thinking, um, uh, we can then marry that sort of deep fundamental dive to um, to this whatever behavioral bias we think is being committed. Um, uh, is it a representative bias? Is it an availability bias? Is it is it something that is is preventing people from seeing um, uh, that this business might look very different to everybody in two or three years. Um, and those things are exciting. They're, they're wobbly, they're volatile, but they're, they're exciting. And so the, the goal for the Alpha Europe process is to focus on sectors which are less macro exposed. Now, you're still gonna have macro exposures everywhere, industrials, even technology, but broadly they're a little more secular, a little more stern, firm specific than say utilities or real estate or different, uh, sort of consumer, um, uh, Defensives, these things that are going to go ebb and flow more with just market appetite for that kind of stock. Whereas you can find winners and losers within the healthcare equipment space, or within media, or technology, or industrials, pretty easily. Not easily, you, you can identify them. Um, it's going to be dispersion of returns, and that that gives you the chance to do stock picking. So we focus on those groups and try to gel it up to a portfolio. Um, or actually to a focus list first of sort of things that look really interesting and dynamic and 
And then we sort of start this debiasing process. Okay, what, what can we do to sort of make sure we're not, we're not being affected ourselves? And we're not immune just because we know about behavioral finance or studied under Richard Thaler. It's, I mean, Dan, Danny Conwell will say himself, you know, I, I came up with all these things. I still commit the same errors. It's, it's just because you know about them doesn't mean you, you can prevent them. Um, so what can we do ourselves to sort of insulate our emotions and and uh, and uh, and recognize at least that we're biased people, uh, biased analysts, biased PM. Um, well, we can write short cases on everything we want to buy, like not just the sort of quote unquote one paragraph. These are the risks of the long case, but the deep dive short case of how are you going to make money on this thing on the short side, um, and. Um, and I should say that backing things up, when we launched Alpha Europe back in 2008, our main product was a long, short fund. And then we were bought by Prella Weinberg in 2012, it was, and pretty quickly launched a long only fund alongside it. And, and then as we spun off Prella's platform to launch Albert Bridge back in 2016, um, it was a long only fund that we led with. And, um, but still bringing those long short principles, I think helps. Um, and so if we can come in there and build, we call them shadow models or black sky models. Okay, here's a business that we think has got great ROICs and they're gonna beat numbers and no one's paying attention because this, this, and this. And okay, now, now flip yourself around and represent the defense and, and uh, tell me why this thing's a dog and why it's gonna go lower and what's gonna happen. And, and it's a great de-biasing exercise. And, and each of those so each, that work for both, you know, both the long and the short work on each of these names become sort of our constraints, sort of, okay, well, if we're right about company XYZ or XYZ, as you might say in Australia, or <laughs> we would say, they, um, we, can, we can then say, okay, if we're broadly right about, right about what this stock will be worth, um, if we're right, and if we're broadly right about what the stock will be worth if we're wrong, then we can get, we can start to develop this notion of risk and reward. We can start to develop this notion of expected returns. And then we could ask ourselves, okay, well, how long is this gonna take for the market to wake up to this thesis? Is it gonna take a year, is it gonna take two years? Um, how volatile is this thing naturally? We should penalize it if it's naturally more volatile. And we could put all these things into a mix. And then if effectively um, using a bit of Kelly criterion math, come up with the right size we think these positions should be. And obviously that's gonna be somewhat dependent on the expected returns of the other things that we've found that have gelled up. But then the goal for us is to basically get a 15, 20 stock portfolio. And, and then within that portfolio, and this is in a long only portfolio, within that portfolio, um, just by the nature of those expected returns, typically get 35 to 50% of the AUM in the top five positions. And, um, and their duration in the portfolio will be a function of not only um, how the fundamentals do develop over the next few years, um, but also just their own volatility. That stocks could, you know, they could, they could go up to, you know, Goldman Sachs upgrades the stock and it rallies 12% over three days. Well, we lost a bit of the expected return that we might even trim some of that, wait for it to find its equilibrium later and add back to it. So this sort of stock selection, uh, managing the positions and just and, and then the um, sizing of them um, all those things are sort of factors that help contribute to this alpha uh, uh, proposal um, and for us it's um, it's uh, 
basically since 2010, it's a, it's a tough time to be a value investor. You've been talking about this every podcast, right? So, um, and we've been really proud of being able to outperform the markets despite us not owning any Tesla um, or, any, or anything remotely close to it. Um, uh, then that would have been impossible if I had a 75 stock book. It, it really needs to be concentrated. It needs to be high conviction, deep dive stuff especially because you want to be able to hold on to it when the, when everything does hit the fan, right? You really, you, you can't, and you also want to be able to say, Hey, I screwed this up and have a, that's it. Toby have a culture where you can mess things up. That's another key device. And so I kind of jumping all over the place here, but you know, you want your analyst, you want yourself to sort of, you know, not, not, not to their, RWSB point of sort of posting your losses and saying how great they are, but certainly to the point of, of being able to say, no, I messed this one up. And, and this is a big thing. I use a lot of baseball analogies in the UK and you've been in the U S long enough. You'll get them, but uh, they're, they're lost a bit when I talk to our British investors, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's not just a batting average game. It's a slugging percentage game. Right. And, and we're going to have all these sort of ways to sort of try to get that, batting average up. So get more stocks right than you get wrong. Um, but within those ones that you get right, you have this notion of impact, this, you know, <clears throat> and for us, you know, you know, for things that where there's you know, either make money or lose money relatively or absolutely, we're, we're sort of, it's kind of a mid fifties sort of hit rate batting average, if you will. But if you look at the things that had more than 100 basis points impact or more than 200 basis points impact or more than 300 basis points of impact over the last however many years, that that batting average becomes a slugging percentage and it gets up into the 60s and the 70s, which is what we want, what we want to uh, to see. And um, so we, we throw all that stuff in the mix in terms of how we size the positions and uh, and and have this culture where because we've written that short note, we're looking for the bad stuff. And if we see the bad stuff, you just hold your hand up and say, hey, this is one of those four out of 10 that we're gonna screw up. And it's, it's, it's one of those things that kind of offsets that whole Kahneman-Tversky loss aversion thing. If, you're, if it's okay to have a loss, it's, it's no fun, especially if you've been public about it, if your investors know it's a big idea and you, you think you're smart because you picked the right stock, you don't wanna find information which makes you look stupid. Um, but that's kind of what we should do. That's kind of what we should do. So have that process and have it, make it okay to make those mistakes. What's your universe in terms? So it's, it's Europe, but is it, it's, uh, anywhere in Europe. And then do you care about sort of your geographic concentration or diversification, or that's just an irrelevant consideration? Well, it may, it may not be irrelevant, but I don't care. I don't care about, uh, we're basically a Western European focused product, um, so we'll have, it depends on what ideas make their way through the, through the process and th through our universe into this focus list. But we'll typically have a lot of exposure in the UK or Germany, or France, sometimes in Sweden, Norway, Finland, um, Spain, very little in Portugal or Austria, a bit in Holland, um, a bit in Italy. Um, just depends on the ideas and the, and the nature of them. Um, but no, we're not... Um, I, Arguably, it's become less important after we all moved to the euro, but you know, in terms of FX risk. But um, from a from a geographic perspective, we monitor it, um, but we don't have any constraints on it. If it turns out that we have half the portfolio in one country, 
uh, as long as we think we're doing things that are idiosyncratic and they're not that related to each other, we're totally fine with it. And similarly, you say the same thing about um, our sector exposures. We've got a lot of consumer stuff. We have a lot of uh, industrial stuff, uh, very little in tech in, in Europe. Um, it just, we haven't found things we thought that were, we had a few IT services exposures over the years where we thought people are missing out on things. Um, What's the limiting there? Yeah, you just don't think that they're cheap enough. They're just, they're just not, they're just not underfollowed enough. Uh, well, we have, we have a, you know, there are some that are, but we, you don't have these sort of um, global dominating kind of businesses in tech like we have in the U.S. Um, we had one, our, which we held, and this is, I mean, it's not a value stock at all, but we held it because we, you know, this is a great example, actually, Toby, it was Arm Holdings was a company that basically they're the, they're the, they're inside all these phones. They're, they're they've, uh, the, the Arm architecture is, um, it's a global Global, globally dominating business, SoftBank bought it a few years ago. Um, so that kind of lost uh, one of our potential sort of world world dominating tech companies. Um, and of course we have SAP and you know the big IT services companies like Capgemini and Atos and things. But, um, and we've, you know, we've had different positions in, in a lot of these things over the years. And I should mention too, sometimes we've had names in the portfolio for six months. Um, Usually it's when we sort of get six months into it, we're like, no, we screwed that up. That's wrong. Um, um, sometimes it's because the thesis changed. Um, and then sometimes there can be something in the portfolio for years. Um, but even that, it's not a static size. It, it can be a 5% position and that can grow to eight and fall to four. Just all very much driven by what its expected returns are. It's like we have that, that here's what we're worth if it goes up. Here's what it's worth it's, if it goes down. Where is the stock in that? And how does that compare to other things in the portfolio? And as, as the expected returns fall for certain things, we'll shift that capital into other things that have higher expected returns. And that drives a bit of turnover, which has a bad name, but I think it can actually be a positive thing in a concentrated book if you're, if you're doing it um, from uh, without bias. Uh, easier said than done, but uh, that's part of the process for us too. So how are you hunting for what you're looking for? How are you tracking them down then how are you sort of going what's the process for validating and and making sure they fit for the portfolio so we, we start with a, a defined universe of billion dollar market cap companies and up in the sectors we focus on and the analysts including myself will be in charge of doing the work in those how, how big is that universe roughly it's a 300 stock universe basically um and you can have you know call it five different sectors that we're you know Focusing mostly on, like I mentioned, we don't look at the utilities or the telecoms or the interest rate sensitive stuff, real estate. Um, <clears throat> but in these stock picking sectors, these ones with the highest dispersion, um, it becomes a matter of, we call our process the game, gather, analyze, model, evaluate. So at the, you know, at the beginning of the process, you're just gathering information. You're going to conferences, you're meeting with companies, um, and you're just trying to hear things that you didn't expect to hear. And if you don't hear anything you didn't expect to hear, you'd move on to the next sector, the next idea. Um, but if you hear that stuff that, hey, I didn't expect that. If you see management change its tone from what they used to say six months ago or a year ago, well, let me look, let me dig a little deeper to this and then move into the A state. You start to analyze all the information you've gathered, most of which the, 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 the sort of the most important thing in that A stage is to get rid of information, get rid of stuff which is noisy and people are going to think it's news, but it doesn't matter and try to really hone in on the stuff that does matter. And in the M stage, we're just modeling it. Okay, what's this thing going to look like? Um, 
um, what's uh, you know down the road, given the, the restructuring that they're doing, or the products that they're launching, or the margins that they're seeing, or the demand that we're hearing about. Um, and then in the east stage, the evaluation stage, we're evaluating consensus expectations. Okay, where is Mr. Market? What do they think about this? And we tried. It's hard, but we try not to know that stuff at first. We don't talk to sell side analysts until very end to see what their views are. We don't want to be biased ourselves. We just want to be fairly open and objective, this notion that company XYZ is a buy or it's a sell or it's a nothing. Uh, once we decide it's something um, in that E stage, then we're trying to understand why. Okay, why does the market not see the things that we see? What are we getting wrong? What, what are they getting wrong? And if we can then marry those things, then we have candidates for the focus list. And then the whole expected return thing is what then helps me down select to a more concentrated portfolio of our very best ideas. So, so when you're when you're looking at uh, upside and downside, if the if something is a potential zero, is it still potentially in the portfolio, or is it only? Th- it's never that's that's never going to get a consideration, even though the upside might be so vast. Yeah, I mean, it raises a great question, right? And 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 I wonder if I would answer the question differently now than I would have a year ago. Um, and I, 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 from my career, it's always been this notion of look, of you know, I don't mind asymmetry. Like you, you can, I mean, theoretically, Toby, we can have situations where we think there's only a 30, 40% chance of it being a winner. But if, you, if it's a three bagger, if it wins, almost call option E. Um, and there's only 20% downside if it doesn't win. Well, you'll, you'll, you'll press forward. But um, typically, we don't have that kind of situation. Usually, it's a 60 to 80% conviction kind of name um, where we'll have downside. Um, and you know, I mean, the bigger balance sheets potentially have more downside if things go pear-shaped. Um, but, you know, fast forward into the way markets can behave in these extreme periods, like a lot of our stuff that I you know, sort of totally misestimated what the downside was for a lot of our names in March of 2020, right? So stuff that we thought might have fallen 30% in the worst case literally was down 60, 70. Um, and you can mess things up on the upside too, because you want to be conservative. You don't want to look stupid. Hey, I think company XYZ could quintuple. There's no upside to saying that to your boss or to your investor, right? If you say, hey, there's great upside, look, we're seeing we're ahead of the street by 25%. We think it's 80% of the report. We think it can go up 80%. Okay, that's getting out there, but that's that's uh, that's uh, still reasonable. But you can't, uh, you know, you, you, it's, it's, you've got to be careful in terms of uh, uh, being objective yourself. And so the question becomes now, after we saw what could happen to companies in March last year, how will the market react to that as it marches forward and thinks about how to value upside and downside of certain kinds of things? Um, no, or should people model for a global man- pandemic that will shut down the economy? Um, and as it turns out, markets really didn't care that much about it ultimately, and uh, which I, which I, it's still very intrigued by. Um, and that's in a whole other discussion, policy reaction and things like that. But uh, it, it does beg the question, but what is the actual downside um, it, now that we've been introduced to this idea that economies can be ground to a halt? It's not something that I've done any work on, but it's just something that I sort of anecdotally observed as we went through that there were a lot of companies that had, mm-hmm. um, you know, healthy balance sheets with plenty of cash on the balance sheet. You would think that 
with a business that's reasonably strong through that period, it should have been, you know, I don't want to say lower beta, but it should have moved less than the market. And then yeah. there were companies on the other side that were pretty heavily levered, weren't making any money. You would think that that would be a little bit more, a uh, little bit more volatility than the market. And it was an unusual period because I don't think that that, if anything, it was the other way around. It was some of the ones that I thought were a bit junkier didn't react as much and some of the ones that were a little bit safer reacted more. I mean, I think Berkshire Hathaway is a pretty good example of that. Yeah. Just like a, uh, an absolute, you know, a uh, battleship that's just unsinkable. And then it yeah. was done. It was done more than the market. Yeah. And, and that's a great point. So what I think happened with Berkshire and actually what happened to a host of names, it's kind of depended what factor box you were in. And so and we were even seeing that before the pandemic started. Um, it was, if you're in the growth mo box, you get sort of a different constituency than you're in the, from the value anti-mo box. And um, it became so, um, well, I think historically sort of significant um, by the middle of, I guess, uh, late March, early April, that even in our portfolio, we, we typically, we, we'll, we'll tilt value week. Right? We, we, we're not a growth shop at all. We won't own a lot of that other stuff, but but we're, we're happy to own arm holdings, as, as I mentioned uh, back, back in the day. Um, but we found ourselves tilting way more value just because it was, it was, uh, it was silly. And, it, it's, and you see it even still now. If you're in this box, you're in this mean box, or if you're in this growth box, or if you're in this famang box, um, you have flows. And, uh, and that has this sort of self-sustaining narrative until it doesn't. Uh, the, the parallels, I'm sure you've, it, this one's been beaten to death, but the parallels between what we're seeing now with the SPACs and the, and the free money back in 98, 99, or the RWSB versus the sort of message boards and chat rooms, there, there's so many similarities um, to the behavior um, and why people want to own things. And the trick for folks to do what I do is, um, you have to be aware of that, right? So you're scouring your portfolio, making sure you're not short things that they might decide they love, uh, even if it's probably a zero. Um, but at the same time, you have to realize that ultimately, and this is this is the ultimate question, and I've had this debate with some good mates of mine about this whole, this notion of the the voting machine and the weighing machine, this, this pentagram notion of, how things work and uh, you know, going back to this, I mentioned being at college and sort of reading everything I could. Um, my favorite quote from him was uh, the, mornings, the market's a voting machine where on countless individuals register their votes, partly the product of reason, partly of emotion. And that's what drives things. Part of it's reason, part of it's emotion. And, and that's a time varying thing, right? It's not like everyone's always crazy and it's not like everyone's always calm, but reason's always there. And it's either a big part of things or a small part of things. And this, that gets us to this notion of the voting and weighing machine. Um, uh, uh, ben Hunt, an Epsilon Theory, a friend of mine, he thinks it's a voting machine from here to eternity. Um, and uh, I think that it depends. I think it's, it's, it eventually becomes a weighing machine. And in some cases it becomes a weighing machine very quickly. You know, you have a market overreact to a bad earnings print and then it finds equilibrium or that could take years, but eventually we get to the fundamentals. And so then you've got to make sure you're structuring your investments, your business, um, so that you have that 
um, ability to weather that storm between now and then. And also, you can't be steadfast in your, hey, I, just because you bought a stock and it's lost money doesn't mean it's necessarily going to come back. It might be a bad idea. It might be one of those four out of 10 that wasn't going to work um, as the piece has changed. Let's go back and read the short case. Is that does that actually look stronger now? Let's go back and read your buy case. And is, is some of those some of those pillars to the bike foundation uh, broken down? Um, just constantly be as objective as you can about it, and uh, hopefully that uh, makes you uh, more clear thinking than the next guy, which is what we're trying to do. I think it always looks like a voting machine that will never stop being a voting machine when it has been a voting machine for a long time. But that's what Lakonashik, Shalifa, Vishni, they would say naive extrapolation investors are always going to assume that you just continue on with this trend in earnings or stock prices or so, whatever. And then the better bet has typically been to assume that there'll be some mean reversion at some point. So I've, I've been a little bit resistant. Um, Michael Green also has that argument that uh, the flows totally dominate the market now and will until there's sort of this crack up boom yeah. and then a bust, which I, I, you know, it's hard to argue otherwise in a market that is going to do that until it doesn't. I know. And I had a few discussions with him as well. I, we, I disagree, um, but it, it lays out a very compelling argument about how flows are sort of the dominating feature and um, that a lot of the theory that we've all learned on how things work and why they should work uh, is inapplicable if, 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 if uh, at best from this perspective. But when I take a look at it, it's, you know, it, it is the case that ultimately, um, you know, we own shares, not because of some belief that we can sell them at a higher price to someone else, but because we have a belief that eventually there's cash flows and dividends um, and either through share price appreciation or return of capital that will we'll decide that'll be what drives what things are ultimately worth. Um, the question becomes is ultimately 20 years from now or is it six months from now? And obviously it's, it's we prefer it to be something that's quicker rather than longer. And you get that validation and you don't have as much volatility. Um, but at the same time, I think to, to the point of the guys who focus more on flows, you do have to be cognizant of it. And if, if I were to go back and diagnose some things where my big mistakes have been, you know, not only do I never buy the bottom, <laughs> I don't think anyone does. I'm always too early. You know, I'm always saying, oh, shoot, this thing's down 12% for the stupidest reason of all time. Let me go buy a bunch of it. And then it just keeps going and going and going. And I'm letting myself think that the market's going to get reasonable and rational and that the, the weighing machine will show up tomorrow when it might not. It might be six months from now. Now, the trick is rewiring your circuits. And it's hard to do because, because sometimes the thing to do is to buy that stock because tomorrow the weighing machine will show up. Um, so I think it, I think a lot of that comes back to sort of the kinds of ideas you have and how, you know, how similar, you know, in pieces they are, not in terms of what the companies do, but actual, is this an overreaction thesis? Is this an overreaction thesis or is this an under? And that's an under and how do they might behave? How might they behave in different sort of market regimes? But it's interesting to watch this whole narrative thing, uh, this whole notion that narratives are dominating and, and driving things and, and for every GameStop that's obviously was a 
you know, you just get a bunch of people on board. I think hedge funds on both sides of that were probably the bigger players than anyone wants to realize. And, but it, it was interesting to see. And then of course it, it you know, with that, it's still, you know, 900% higher than where it was a year ago. Right. But, but this whole move from 40 to 450 and then back to 40 or 50, wherever it is now, um, that all happened in this craziest week I re can remember. Um, I, I was involved in the Volkswagen thing back in 08. This, this I think, felt certainly in percentage terms was much greater, not in terms of total. I think Volkswagen gained you know, 300 billion euros of value in the space of three days. Um, and this wasn't that big in total, but it was, it was bigger moving percentage terms. Um, but that was a narrative thing. Let's say, let's take it up because people believe in it. And, and then you had, um, I think a lot of professionals who followed that momentum and maybe played that a bit in, in sort of some of the short squeeze activity that we saw. Um, I think some of the people that knew they were buying it probably didn't think it was worth what they were paying, but they'd be able to sell it higher. Um, and you have things like Tesla, which to me, um, and I've written a few things about this. I've tried to debias myself. I've, I've tried to, I've tried to uh, come up with the most bullish sort of potential assumptions, not only for the automotive business, but trying to do it for the automotive business and then see what remains and what's the market paying for the sort of Elon Musk option. And I think, you know, I, I don't want to say it's a GameStop because they've got real business. They have real things that they do, but it's the narrative that's driving that one too. It's just, but it's, it just continues. It's, it's so strong. It's so powerful. So much so that when Elon tweets out, he likes uh, Bitcoin or, or, uh, or GameStop or anything, you know, you, it's, it's, you, it's like Matt Levine's writing a lot about this right now. It's, you know, you get a, here, here's a billion dollars, whatever he says, it goes. Um, and um, so it, it's, that stuff is, it's, it's narrative driven. It's um, a bit more, some people say investing in stocks is gambling, but it's certainly a lot more like gambling than it is uh, pure stock picking when you're sort of guess, well, I'd be able to sell this at a higher price than someone else because the Mo's working. Um, some guys are very good at that. Um, it's not my skill set. Mine is, would keep me away from owning something like Tesla, unfortunately, um, uh, because I can't get there um, even in the most, I mean, <laughs> Toyota and Volkswagen both were founded in 1937 and they're just incredible global scale businesses. And they've, after, after uh, decades have arrived at the point where they have 10% or 7% global market share um, and extremely profitable. And you can, you can make all these fast forward assumptions about EV being 90% of every car that's sold in 15 years. And you can, start to flex on what kind of margins uh, these players will have in that. You know, you look at the CapEx that Toyota itself is spending, add up all the CapEx of all the auto companies and it's, it's, uh, it's over a hundred billion dollars and, and Tesla will spend four, right? So uh, I think it's gonna be a rude awakening. You've heard these arguments before, but just let's say that I'm wrong. Let's say that, that uh, Tesla does become a Toyota or a Volkswagen. And let's say they become twice the company that those two, but let's say they have 20% market shares of all EVs sold and they do net margins that are higher than what 
Tesla does today because of the software add-ons and things like that. Even doing that, you, 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 you can't get to more than $350, $400 billion market cap, which means even in that incredibly almost impossible scenario, you're paying another $600 billion for whatever it is he's going to do next. And um, yes, it's been great for Kathy Wood and everyone else to have bought this thing and have it rip and build a business out of it. But um, philosophically, um, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. So to, to what extent is this driven by the option speculation, which seems to be the tail that wags a dog a little bit, uh, where the, there's some delta hedging going on by the folks on the other side of that trade? Yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of talk about the gamma squeeze and sort of and you, get, you get this, uh, uh, whenever someone's out buying a call option, you, then the hedgers are going to have to go out and buy stock the guys that sold them the stuff. Now they sold it at a very nice bid offer spread. So they're not, these guys aren't going to be losing money when they do this. So they go out and they Delta hedge and the stock goes higher. So they got to buy a bit more of the Delta. It works back the other way. I think that might've driven some of the sort of the, the craziness. I think what dro drove it more crazy than it might've been warranted is that everyone started talking about it, right? So it wasn't just the technicalities of a gamma squeeze. It was that everyone learned what a gamma squeeze was. And right. everyone overall, everyone's like, people never heard the term. And they're like, son, dad, what's a gamma squeeze? Well, geez, what? <laughs> you know? so, um, the, so it just became this wonderful self-fulfilling feedback loop. Um, and I think the, the sort of retail guys thought they were fighting the hedge funds when, when in fact it was probably hedge funds fighting hedge funds um, and just playing the narratives. And a lot of sort of misdirection and sort of talking about front running and, and sort of coordination. It, it was just, it was just a speculative mania, uh, which we've seen time and time again. And this time it's, everyone's talking to each other in real time. And so you come up with these notions of, of politics or of, or of, uh, the, you know, screwing the man and, you know, you know, let's pay, let's, let's get these hedge funds back for their bailout. No way. I'm thinking to myself, mate, hedge funds did, were bailed out. No way. It was the banks and the hedge funds right. found out a lot of this stuff and a lot of these sort of egregious situations. These things, short sellers are um, a paragon of virtue. Uh, yes, they can be spivvy and dodgy, some, but most are not. Most are, you know, good folks who are helping people construct portfolios that give them a little bit of uh, uncorrelated return to the rest of what they own. They're out there making markets efficient. They're out there um, exposing um, uh, situations so that mom and pops don't pay too much for stuff because no one's doing the work. And so there's a value that they add. And um, it's, it's a tough place to have been since 2009 um, when everything's ripping. Um, but uh, for those that have been able to sustain it and, and stay with it, uh, it'll come back in vogue, believe me. So, as soon as markets start falling down, everyone's going to want long shorting yet. So um, it's, uh, but uh, yeah, it, the, all the narratives that were flying around the last two weeks, they were just nuts. They were just crazy. Um, and it was wild. But uh, we're not out of the woods either. Other things are going to happen. We're in this environment now. And we could, we could tell ourselves it's because interest rates are low and money's free. And, and so you can sort of discount terminal values with, hundred years duration at whatever price you want and pay infinity for a thing. 
Or you can say that's a bit of a post hoc explanation for why things are the way they are. We had a bubble in 1999 when interest rates were 5%. It wasn't, that wasn't the story. It was just people got excited and, and psychology took off. And I, and I do wonder if a lot of that is what's hitting us now. And the unpredictability of all that is if it's happening now, it can, you know, if things are twice as expensive as they should be, they could become three times as expensive. Um, but back to the voting and weighing, eventually market ways. And, you know, and uh, we saw that in after the tech bubble, even great companies, you know, fell 80% to where they should have been. And then they've marched higher since. Um, uh, and we'll, we'll see, we'll see how it all plays out. But the timing of it, who, I mean, who knows? I think that's a great uh, sentiment to leave it on, Drew. If uh, folks want to get in contact with you or uh, follow along with what you're doing, how do they go about doing that? Just send us an email at info at albertbridgecapital.com. And, uh, and your and, Twitter uh, account. And, they, and if those folks that follow us on Twitter. And if they're interested in sort of learning more about how I think and how we think and our, my philosophy, we do have this Drew's Views blog on our website. Um, and I'll, I usually will post some of that stuff into Twitter as well, but it's a fun thing to scroll through and read sort of uh, some, uh, you know, a bit about the way we think the world works in terms of stock picking valuation is sort of all these questions that we're having, like the, the impact of, of, of flows and of, of uh, factor investing on, on stock picking and what gets squeezed out, what doesn't, and how do you make better decisions? And, and, and as you go about this, uh, it's, a, it's been a cathartic thing for me to do just to write and I enjoy doing it, but uh, I think a lot of our, we got a lot of subscribers now and a lot of folks are, folks are enjoying and hopefully learning a bit. And I'm learning too. I, this, this whole experience uh, of sort of trying to be a bit more out there, whether on Twitter or with our blog, it's met a lot of great people and, and learned a bunch of myself. So it's been, it's been great. And meeting guys like you too, Toby. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, Drew Dixon, Albert Bridge, thank you very much. All right, mate. Cheers. Cheers.